from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Alex Blakeson on January 20th, 2014. Alex grew up in a Baha'i family that left the United States when he was 16 to live in St. Vincent in the West Indies. This set the tone for Alex's life to be an international traveler serving humanity, mainly in South America. He now resides in Vermont. I started the interview by asking Alex where he grew up. And what was it like growing up there? A few different places, actually. I uh, started out growing up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, until I finished third grade and uh, went from there to a, a small town south of Boston, about half an hour away, uh, which was very different culturally and socially, uh, much more kind of white and small town provincial kind of place on the south shore of Boston. Then when I was 16 years old, life really changed because I went off with my parents to serve our faith, the Baha'i faith, in the West Indies. And that was a very big turning point in my life. Uh, How was it that your parents became Baha'is? Well, my mother met a wonderful woman, her name is Grace Bates, in the parking lot of a grocery store in the Boston area, I think it was Cambridge. And really just through striking up a a casual conversation between two moms with kids, eventually my mom learned about the Baha'i faith from Grace. My dad didn't become a Baha'i for seven years after that. And how old were you when your mom became a Baha'i? I believe it was seven. And what was religious life like before you were seven years old? Well, interesting. Both of my parents came from culturally traditional uh, Protestant background, Presbyterian, I believe. But again, you know, kind of culturally Christian, but not uh, a lot of involvement. And my parents, uh, you know, being both young adults of the the 60s and 70s, were really searching for something that was very different from all of the very somewhat stoic Christian tradition that they had been raised with. And kind of a little bit more of a smaller town a kind of mentality. They were really searching for something more universal and for, for answers to the broader questions of life. So that really is what I think led my mom to meet interesting people and ask interesting questions. So I, I really didn't have much specific religious training or education growing up, which sometimes I, I really feel is a, a lack in my life, mm-hmm. actually, until I started going to Baha'i children's classes starting at the age of probably eight. Mm-hmm. which was wonderful in the Boston area. And what was wonderful about it? I remember very clearly some of my teachers and just how much they cared and how much they really believed in and were excited about what they were teaching us. We also, before my dad became a Baha'i, we would go an hour north to Maine to the Greenacre Baha'i School in the summertime. Uh, again, especially before my dad became a Baha'i, he never opposed, always very supportive 
probably welcomed the chance, especially as he was a teacher, to send the kids off <laughs> for a little while in the summer. And we would go, you know, for at least a week, sometimes longer. And there we were really immersed in learning about the Baha'i teachings as children and in a very uplifting kind of environment, a very special place that was for me growing up. Were you aware that your mom had some spiritual leaning so that mm-hmm. by being introduced to the Baha'i faith, it was something that she might be attracted to? Yeah, I mean, I think insofar as six, seven, eight-year-olds can really perceive that or remember that, you know, certainly later in life, as I've heard more of the of the story of her own spiritual journey, there were some real tests and difficulties going on in her life at that time as well. And so a real uh, yearning for answers to very personal questions about her own self and own life, as well as the answers for how do I raise these three young children and teach them something that seems relevant and current uh, and dynamic and yet really is divine. Alex, tell me about your transition to the West Indies, was it? Mm-hmm. Tell me about how that worked for you, being a right. 16-year-old. I was not terribly engaged in the local society where I was living. And so for me, among the children, it was probably the easiest for me to let go of what was and to leap into a new adventure. Were you a loner? Uh, a little bit. During that phase, it's interesting because as I was growing up, it was a very diverse culture that I was surrounded by. I went to a private school in Cambridge that was very diverse culturally and racially and ethnically. You know, grew up in a neighborhood with lots of different kinds of kids from many different backgrounds. And then found myself for those years in this just very isolating kind of, of life and, and finding it difficult to be accepted. So I was uh, a kind of a nature boy. I would really just kind of hang out out in the woods, in the ponds, in the fields for a lot of those years. So accepting a very big cultural change was a little easier, again, for me, I think, among the kids in my family. And why did your parents decide at that time to serve their faith overseas? Well, my dad's story is is interesting of, you know, what made him finally make the decision to become a Baha'i. And, you know, really when he did, one aspect of that was that he, he was really studying the Baha'i faith and really searching and uh, waiting to find the, the fatal flaw, <laughs> the hypocrisy. And when finally, after about seven or eight years of investigating it and studying it, he, he hadn't found that. And then a couple of other occurrences that really made kind of the connection between the head and the heart for him and it all came together. When he became a Baha'i, this was around 1980, we really became truly a Baha'i family. More so even at that time, serving the Baha'i faith overseas, what's called pioneering, was really something that was fairly natural for people to consider as a service that perhaps they could perform. So my parents, I think, felt called to that, or at least to consider that, and spent about a year uh, really investigating the possibilities and learning about it and being trained. Did an exploratory trip to several islands in the West Indies and through a lot of consultation with the Baha'i institutions 
in that area finally landed on St. Vincent as a place that really needed a family like us. And there we went, 1981. What was schooling like for you being 16 years old and going to St. Vincent? Very different. And really, you know, the experience was very different for each, for each of the kids in the family. But for me, I started out with taking correspondence courses. And these were through the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. But, you know, everything, everything works out the way it's supposed to and for a reason in my own understanding of, of these truths. But my textbook for my first semester ended up waylaid in customs on a different island for the whole first semester. Mm-hmm. You know, I could have lamented the fact that I lost a semester of high school education, but far from that, it really, those six months or so were just such an education for me, both in a, an entirely new culture. So many things were new, the climate, the culture. For the first time, I was really a, a racial minority and learning what the, that's like. And, and I really also learned how to study the Baha'i teachings on my own more. And, you know, really a lot of our desire being there was to share the teachings of the Baha'i faith with other people who were interested in them knowing that that was our purpose and also knowing that, you know, a lot of my time was going out and being involved in that work. I really needed to understand what I was sharing with people was a great motivation for me to really learn much more independently at that age what this faith was really all about. And it worked. I really uh, felt a a whole very new and different uh, phase unfold in my life at that time. You mentioned how you've experienced for the first time what it was like to be a minority in a population. Mm-hmm. What kind of experiences did you have that sort of made that come forward to you in, in your consciousness? Mm-hmm. In many of the islands, and St. Vincent was not an exception, there was a long history of colonialism. St. Vincent was a British colony up until 1979, so up until just two years before we arrived. And so a white person was generally associated with colonial rule, even if you weren't British, and even if logically you, know, you were not a colonizer or, or there for those purposes. Until people would get to know you, that's the category in which you would fall. For me at that age and for my sister, who was a few years younger, it was easier to be accepted because children had naturally less prejudice than perhaps their, the adults did. But for my whole family, it, it was a slow process of gaining trust and really reaching out heart-to-heart with people who were willing to put aside those prejudices. Interestingly, the West Indian people are very, very welcoming and warm-hearted. Uh, I would say that is the first impression that strikes one much more naturally than those who are resistant or jaded by those years of colonialism. You know, it was really just a matter of being out in society and and meeting people and realizing our common humanity and being willing to ignore history and culture and race and and really look at ourselves as fellow searchers uh, along the, the path towards God. Do you have a significant memory of your time there that you would like to share? Yeah, there is one that comes to mind. You know, interestingly, St. Vincent is really a fairly small island, only 
10 miles wide by 17 miles long. And yet, it's a very mountainous island, volcanic. The road, there's really just kind of one road that goes all the way around the island, and it doesn't even quite make it all the way around the island. The very northern tip of the island is still inhabited by a small population of people of Indian descent, uh, descended from the Arawak Indians, who were once a, a much larger, more present population throughout the West Indies. There was one time when the whole family made a trip up the Windward Coast, two diff very different sides of the island, the Windward and the Leeward, and the Windward Coast had these big waves and bent over palm trees. You know, just to go these 17, not even 17 miles, was, was a, over a two-and-a-half-hour journey along these, these bad roads that then turned to dirt. We spent several days, maybe even a week, way up in one of these villages that really saw very few visitors from the capital of St. Vincent or from outside those villages. So, it, of course, it raised a huge amount of curiosity, not just people from the outside, but, of course, white foreigners were there in the village. And we stayed in this small, unoccupied house that we rented for that week. And we would hold meetings every evening for the local people. And I remember just being in this very tiny, basically one-room house that was just completely packed with people, standing room only and not even standing room much, all kinds of kids outside of the house looking in the windows, and us reading prayers and singing songs, because the West Indians love to sing, by the light of this little kerosene lantern. I remember thinking to myself, even at that age of 16, that this must be really what unity, which is really the keynote of the Baha'i teaching, that this is what unity really feels like and looks like. You know, these people packed like sardines together, singing, praying, and praising, learning together, and it didn't matter how little or much physical light we had. We were making this light in the bonds between these people. And I felt very accepted by them. I, I felt none of that trace of prejudice or distrust that perhaps had accompanied some of our early time there. People learned to accept us. What was the official language of St. Vincent? Well, officially English, but the language that's spoken in most of the islands are called dialects. In the city... It's a little easier to understand it if people speak slowly enough. When you're out in the country, people speak very quickly and also with enough different construction in the English and vocabulary that, you know, it took us probably six months to really fully understand what the country folk were saying. And then in that village way up, there was actually even a little bit of what's called patois, spoken up in that northern part of the island. But everyone spoke enough English that really was our, our common language together. So they weren't that remote that they were speaking a indigenous language versus the colonized no, language? No, unfortunately, most of the Arawak and native languages in the Caribbean have been mostly lost. So how long did you stay in St. Vincent? So I actually was there for just that one first year before coming back to the U.S. 
to go to school for a couple of years before then going off to serve the faith again in Latin America. Um, and my parents stayed for 10 years. You went back to the United States to finish high school? Yeah, and I actually went to a very interesting college. I really felt that this experience of having served there just opened some doors for me that I don't think would have opened in my life otherwise. I was not particularly happy with my public American high school in my small town near Boston where I had been going for a couple of years, and I ended up going to this place called Bard College at Simons Rock in western Massachusetts in the Berkshires. That's really at the time, and I think still is, pretty much the only place that took high school sophomores and juniors and started them early on college-level work. Not so much because they were academically gifted, but because they had had very interesting lives and interesting experience and were considered ready to engage in some of life's bigger college questions. So I did that for a couple of years. At the end of that time, was called up by a friend of mine who was studying in Massachusetts who said that there was a call to Baha'i youth. And this was in 1984. It was a letter that had come from the Universal House of Justice at the Baha'i World Center in Israel. This call was for Baha'i youth to give a set period of service to the Baha'i faith somewhere in the world. And of course, you know, it felt like a very exciting rallying call to all of us at that time. It was very fresh. My friend and I, at the invitation, along with other youth, of one of the members of that Universal House of Justice at that time, we went off to South America, to Colombia. And we were three months at a place called the Ruhi Institute, just outside of the city of Cali in Colombia. And we were trained there in a whole incredibly systematic system of education, particularly designed at that stage for rural people, but really now has spread throughout the world used by people in all kinds of places. Then after those three months of training in Colombia, he and I, plus two others who had come from Bolivia, went to Bolivia and served out the rest of that year in the Andes Mountains, mostly, of Bolivia which was quite an experience. So you had to speak Spanish. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of joke now with especially young people I'm talking to about learning because, you know, I was studying Spanish in college and a little bit in high school, and my college Spanish class was an 8 a.m. every morning class. And I don't know how many college students are really fully awake at 8 a.m. every morning, but I wasn't one of them. <laughs> And so I was not doing very well academically in my Spanish class by the end of my last college semester of Spanish. Three months after that class, there I was in Colombia, immersed in Spanish, only Spanish. And what's interesting is that I learned Spanish really by studying the Baha'i writings in Spanish, as well as these other courses that were designed to help rural youth to learn everything from agricultural production to basic math, literacy, community development. So uh, I really learned this kind of very interesting vocabulary in Spanish right from the beginning. Mm. And within about three months of being in Latin America, I was speaking the language just fine. Before that, I, I, I'm glad no one ever asked me anything. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, Colombia, especially in the rural areas, isn't there concern about conflict? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's a civil war that's been going on in Colombia for over 40 years, which is just very hard for almost anyone from any country to contemplate how a country can be in civil war for 40 years, but it's true. So you always in Colombia had to be aware, we did, and the organizers of whatever we were doing, just had to be aware of where the fight was and who the fighters were. And there were times in Colombia's history where that actually became very confusing, who, who the good guys and bad guys were. When my wife and I actually, we got married and we went back to live in Colombia for a couple of years, we had a few close calls, actually, with some bombs. But while I was there, it felt like I was in paradise. You know, we were out in this beautiful institute in a quiet rural village, going out to work with people in these rural villages, children, youth, farmers. It couldn't have felt like a more safe and peaceful place in the world. Do you have any significant memories you would like to share with either Colombia or Bolivia? Or both? Wow. Many. <laughs> I'll start with Bolivia, and that is a time when there was a member of, of the Baha'i community in Bolivia known as a counselor, Counselor Eloy Anello. He really set the example, I think, for other Baha'is, particularly for the Baha'i youth who were arising from both Bolivian and from any other, other place in the world. And he would hike to these remote villages especially up in the Andes on the Altiplano, it's called, the High Plains. There just are no roads to get to many villages. First thing you would do would be to get in a jeep and to go as far as the jeep would make it. Then you would get out and walk. Sometimes to reach a village would take a whole day or a couple of days. And I guess we were lucky we only ever had to do a whole day of walking. But I remember going out to this village that was hours of hiking. Up on, on the Altiplano, there's not a lot of air because it's such high altitude. It was really a, a very rigorous physical test for us as well as a spiritual adventure. My year of service partner at that time, his name was Scott Fluger, now Jonathan Estes, and he and I hiked all the way to this small village, I don't remember the name, and we stayed for a week. Um, if you're going to hike that far, you might as well stay for a week. We gave courses to the local people in basic health, literacy, and of course these things we taught from the perspective of the Baha'i teachings with that enlightenment behind what we taught, but it was not specifically at that time teaching the Baha'i. But I remember just what that seemed to mean to those people in that very small village and just how warmly they received us and how they would sacrifice the very little that they had, food, the warmest little corner of adobe house they had. And, and again, it kind of connected back, I think, to that feeling that I had in that little village in St. Vincent where you feel like materially are just, hey, out there, you are in a place that, where no one would ever find you, and yet with no need to be found, because really that, that connection of hearts was all that one needed, and it was there. 
There was just that real sense of unity across a fairly significant language barrier. We were talking before about the Indian languages. Well, this, most of the highlands of Bolivia, people will speak some Spanish, but mostly they spoke the Quechua and Aymara Indian languages. So, in fact, uh, a couple of our Baha'i friends came along both to teach but also to translate. And so they would translate from Spanish to the Aymara language and then back and forth again between those two languages. That was just a really, really an otherworldly experience that I had being there. What did you do when you returned to the United States? So while I was in Bolivia finishing that year of service, I found out about an institution called the School for International Training, uh, which is here in Brattleboro, Vermont, where I happen to now live, and knew that it was a place that would offer a short stay in the United States on campus and then an internship abroad in order to get one's bachelor's degree. I knew that that's exactly what I wanted, that I had no interest really at that point then in staying in the United States for any long period of time. I was really hooked on Latin America. So I said, okay, well, get me through that. I'll get through these nine months of campus study in Vermont, uh, and then get me back to Bolivia or somewhere like it. Uh, And so that's what I did. I uh, arranged to do an internship back in Bolivia in a very different part of Bolivia, completely different climate. And it was through a partnership of a Baha'i-inspired non-governmental development organization and an international health-focused development organization. And so I went back and did my internship that fulfilled my bachelor's requirements and taught me a whole lot in what's called the Chaco region of Bolivia where it gets to be 120 in the shade. A completely different experience, very different population. Some similarities in the work that I was doing, but some big differences as well. So I learned a great deal from it. So tell me about this Baha'i-inspired institution. Yeah. It was called the Foundation for the Integral Development of Bolivia. And I have to say, I haven't kept up as well as I would like on, on its progress in recent years. But, you know, really like many organizations of its kind, it was early effort for Baha'is who, in 1983 in particular, were really specifically called upon by the Baha'i institutions, particularly the Universal House of Justice, to implement Baha'i teachings around social and economic development. Again, it was an early effort to try to address, in one sense, you could really simplify it by saying address the the issue of poverty in Bolivia, which is immense. Bolivia remains one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, but really to to build community life, grassroots up, and to apply high teachings around unity that enable people to function and move forward, implement their own vision in their local community. So that's what the Fundasib was all about. After that year in Bolivia, I came back to the U.S. Uh, I came back to finish my bachelor's program at the School for International Training. It was there that I met my wife. You know, during that first nine months on campus in Vermont, I was the only member of the Baha'i faith. I really wanted there to be at least one other Baha'i who would be there after I left 
who represents answer questions. The admissions folks at the school were accustomed to having Baha'is there, usually a couple or, or three at a time, and they knew that they tended to be good students and, and really supportive of the vision of SIT. So with their encouragement, I wrote a letter to all of the Baha'i college clubs, which at the time were about 120. I kind of co-wrote it with the admissions office and explained what a great school the School for International Training was. It was very in harmony and still is with the Baha'i teachings, essentially saying, you know, transfer, come finish your bachelor's program or take one of the master's programs at SIT, and then you can go and serve the Baha'i faith overseas with really excellent training behind you. Out of all these 120 Baha'i college clubs that received this letter, only one person actually ever responded, and I married her. <laughs> she was at the time studying uh, in Washington State and had come from Sweden as a student and had learned about the Baha'i faith there and you know, was really studying and learning about the Baha'i teachings and uh, really heard this call to doing something international and cultural and uh, serving the faith. So jumping ahead a little bit in the story, but when she eventually was admitted to a master's program at SIT and came to start studying, I had then gone back or gone to Bolivia for that internship. So she asked, you know, where's the guy that wrote the letter? They said, well, sorry, he's gone. And so she put that aside for a while and first in her studies. Then I came back for the three-month period to write my thesis and finish my program, and that's when we met. I, there was never anyone else that I ever heard of uh, that ever actually said anything about that letter or came as a result of it. We really just got to know each other for first summer, and then I had already arranged to do an internship here with a Baha'i-inspired social and economic development organization called the Foundation for the Application and Teaching of the Sciences from Bayek in Colombia. You know, we hadn't yet decided to get married. But I went off to Colombia to engage in that internship, and my wife, Karen, arranged to do her internship for her master's program at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel. So she went to do that. Interestingly, the project that she was assigned to was a special research project with three members of that Universal House of Justice, and the project centered all around Latin America, and it centered around the movement in the Christian communities in Latin America towards social and economic development and liberation. So naturally, in order to really do that research project right, she had to do some field research. So six months into her being in Israel, she was able to come and visit Colombia, and we also traveled to Peru and Ecuador, ultimately used our last dollars to go by land across Venezuela, and where we were able to catch a flight to the island of St. Vincent, where my parents still were, and made the decision while we were there in December 1988 to get married. And then, of course, she went back to Haifa, and I went back to Colombia, all before email, believe it or not. Right. <laughs> Did all of our wedding arrangements by fax. <laughs> what happened after your internship? We were married back in Brattleboro, Vermont. Ten days later, after a little honeymoon, we went back to Colombia. Actually, interestingly, we went right into a several-week, in fact, it was part of a several-month-long effort to 
bring the Baha'i teachings to rural villages in Colombia. So we slept on the floor again in these dirt floor homes out in a rural part of Colombia. That was quite an initiation for Karen coming back to Colombia doing that work. So then I was able to do a different kind of, of internship, Pasantia it was called, with that organization, Sundayak, and in fact enter into a five-month-long training course. And after that, we spent about a year and a half living in that part of Colombia where Sundayak and the Ruth Institute are, and then after that um, found jobs in the capital city in Bogota and ended up moving there for another year and a half. What was your job there in Bogota? You know, we searched for a long time for work with international uh, non-governmental organizations doing something related to development. But the challenge was getting a visa. As an American and as a Swede, it was very difficult to actually procure a visa. And so we ended up teaching English at a local language institute. So that's what we did for, for over a year. We, we both taught English. There came a time when uh, Karen needed to finish her master's thesis, and we were um, looking at paying off our student loans, having a little difficulty with visas. So the kind of the things were were stacking up um, that told us it was time to come back to the States for a while. And we did, and we came back to Brattleboro, Vermont, had our first child here. Karen finished her master's thesis. During that year, then, I was looking for a good match for work, and I applied and very happily was accepted to serve at the Baha'i National Center in Chicago. So we moved to Chicago with our firstborn, both of us 10 years serving at the Baha'i National Center. And what was your role there? Karen had several different roles. Mine was all in with one agency called the Office of Pioneering, so the Baha'i Office of International Service. I had a few different roles, including... My last role there was as manager of the office. But really what I did most of those years and really loved to do was working directly with youth who were interested in doing that same term of service like I had done when I was 18, and also working with everyone else in between, families who were wanting to go like my family had done and really make a a major move in their life and really dedicate themselves to another part of the world people who were wanting to travel just for a couple of weeks and wanting to see what they could do to be of service. All of the spectrum of life, everyone was just finding the way that they could serve. And it was my privilege to counsel them, advise, help them through some administrative work, and then to travel around the United States to facilitate a five-day-long uh, pre-departure training, which I loved and continued to do for many years after that. Based here in the Northeast. You said you were there at the Baha'i National Center until 2002? Mm hmm. What caused you to, to leave at 2002? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was another one of those times in life where you know, the, the factors were kind of all stacking up. We had a third child, our bonus baby. Uh, economically, you know, we were committed to having one parent be at home with the child for at least the first couple of years. But the cost of living was quite high in Chicago. We actually lived in Evanston. So the economic factors were becoming tight. It was a little harder for us to continue on the salaries of the financial, which are, are modest. There was also a call to return to Latin America. 
to see if perhaps by coming to Vermont we could spend a few months visiting with family and then find jobs back in Latin America and, and return there. Um, as our children were young enough to make a transition into schooling in Latin America, that ultimately didn't quite work out as we thought it might. And, and here we still are in Vermont, 11 years later. My sister and my parents, while we were living in Chicago, they had returned from their service in the West Indies and my sister from traveling around the world, and they had all established themselves in Vermont. It really was kind of a, a place of family reunion, at least from my side of the family. Uh, my wife's family all still live in Sweden. You know, it really became a place where we kind of regathered after being all over the world. So what have you been doing the last 10 years or so? <laughs> you know, Warren, I'll start from present and work backwards. All right. Um, because I think what's most interesting that we've been engaged in for the last two years is working with a population of youth who are between the ages of 12 and 14. The Baha'is refer to them as junior youth. Junior um, youth, right. And it really um, has taken us some time and, and creativity, kind of finding the resources within ourselves and out there among the older youth to really make this happen. But as our youngest child, who's just about to thir turn 13, came of age, actually she was 11, and really we wanted this experience of these junior youth groups, which are now spread all over the world. There are just tens of thousands of them being done by Baha'is all over the world. We knew that this was something that was really having a great effect in society. So we've been able to sustain that junior youth group with about 10 youth who are all girls, all of the same age, uh, all around 13 now, who have really done amazing things to be of service to their community and their commitment to, to studying and preparing themselves in order to do that service. I have to say that really kind of tops my list of meaningful and exciting things going on here in this corner of Vermont. Yeah, and let me ask you some questions about that. I saw a video called Frontiers of Learning, yes. which I recommend to listeners who haven't seen that video to mm. see what effect a small idea of focusing on children, pre-youth and youth, can have in transforming a community. Right. I'm assuming that your group, to some extent, models a similar format in engaging youth in service to humanity. Exactly. That's really what those junior youth groups are all about. And, and that's the beauty of them, too, is that that common purpose and common structure and even a common curriculum is used all over the world. What kind of service projects was your junior youth group able to yeah. perform? Well, they've done a variety of things. They are a very creative and artistic group, and so they put together some songs, and shared those with some older folks at a, at a senior home who were in need of some art and music and upliftment. They have raised money for the displaced people in Uganda who have been displaced by civil war there, working in cooperation with our local food co-op to sell goods, mostly baked goods that they made. They have raked leaves for neighbors in our little neighborhood where we live. And, and that really is, I think, a lot of the idea behind the service work of these junior youth groups is that they really look at 
what's happening in my own neighborhood, my community? What's the social reality there? Very young people as we may be, how can we have some positive impact on that level of the neighborhood and, and the small community? And they really have. I think that they've seen now what a, a moral and spiritual power they have by engaging in the seemingly small acts of service, but at a, in a very local level. You said it's been going for a couple of years. Yeah. You know, a challenge where we live is finding the older youth who are called animators to facilitate the group because mm. we live in a fairly isolated, remote place. But that's been uh, something that we've had to work very hard at, but we have had some wonderful youth who mm. have fulfilled that role, one of them who lives in your neck of the woods. Oh, yeah? Who's that? Christina Monk. Oh, yes. Yes. And she was our really our first junior youth group animator and just so good at it. Mm. The relationship that she has with our daughter and with the other youth I think is one of sisterhood that will last forever. I think we feel very grateful for for her service. So that model is an outward-looking model, Mm -hmm. such that it's possible as these youth get older that they can actually start encouraging the formation of children's classes in the community. Some areas call it moral education. Some people call it virtue training. But basically, this concept of teaching children by these youth as they get older, this idea of we're all one human family and we're here to serve humanity. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you see things progressing in that way for your junior youth group that has been going now for a couple of years. Yeah, Yeah, very much so, because we live in a town that really is quite rural. It's only uh, 1,900 people. But we happen to live in, in the most densely populated little spot of probably about 50 families um, in that town. And so we do have a kind of a sense of neighborhood along our street. And there are probably about six young children that live in our neighborhood. And our daughter has really made them her protégés, I guess, if you will. So they spend a lot of time together. And the group has been discussing and working on their plan to do something for these children. Uh, and I think that they need a fair bit of encouragement, uh, and yet it's, they're very interested in it, uh, and, and they're still learning how you do that. But that definitely is high on their list of next services. They've come up with the idea for a children's fair that I'd like to do to, to kick things off, and then we certainly hope that they might engage in that service of teaching those younger children on some regular basis. So what's your day job, Alex? Well, there are two things that I'm doing in my life right now, and the most cutting edge, I guess, if you will, of them is that I have become trained and certified as coach, not athletic coach, but what some people understand as life coaching. But my focus is on working with families, particularly families with children and youth still in the family, but any kind of family, and working with families to really define who they would like to be and what they would like to become as a family and coaching them through the steps of working towards that vision, defining it, setting goals and working towards a family vision. So coaching is really the business that I'm establishing. Eventually, the long-term vision for that is to found and really build 
something tentatively titled the Family Unity University that will be probably a not-for-profit organization, but that will be dedicated to applying the Baha'i principles to the development of family life from that perspective. So that's really what I spend my daytime hours doing, in addition to being there after school for my daughter. And then I also work 24 hours a week at the local psychiatric hospital called the Brattleboro Retreat, and I work there with inpatient adolescents who are between the ages of 13, or really 12, and 18, who are there for intensive, short-term, essentially suicide prevention treatment, and who come with a wide variety of pretty big challenges, obviously. The population of youth who really are junior youth, because the average age of these patients is about 14 or 15, but who are really, really struggling with what's dealt to them by life. Alex, in conclusion, what do you think your life would have been like if you had not become a Baha'i? Well, of course, you know, the only answer is I have no idea. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I guess I was young enough, you know, at the age of about seven when Baha'i faith came into my life. I have the feeling, or at least I could say I have the, the hope and the longing that I would have continued to recognize and explore and learn about the Baha'i faith and attempt to live it in my life, even if my father hadn't become a Baha'i. But I feel immensely grateful that he did and has now pioneered on to the next world, if you will. So So he passed away. um, He passed away. passed away very suddenly just three years ago. You know, I I feel so grateful that my parents were both able to recognize Baha'u'llah and and the Baha'i teachings. I can only hope, I guess, that if something had gone very differently, that perhaps I would have eventually found the Baha'i faith on my own in some way, having been exposed to it even a little bit. I guess I'm grateful that I have to, to work that hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alex, thank you so much for sharing your life with us. Thank you, Warren. It's been a real pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Alex Blakeson a Baha'i that has traveled throughout South America in service to humanity. He now resides in Vermont. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. There's been a lot of things that I'm holding in my chest I hear a lot of people saying life is a test But I confess I feel hopeless And I feel a lot of pain
I hear a lot of words that are spoken in vain, but I'm not the same as the rest. So a voice from within speaks out to say, You can't take my heart or take my soul. And try as you may, I will not be controlled. It's been too long that I have not known the power that rests in the pen that I hold. Uh, and no, I'm not a toy. No, I'm not a puppet. No, I'm not a soldier that you can deploy. I am but a word, love, that means that I'm tough and I can't be destroyed. What?
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.